This podcast is presented by DistroKid, an incredible service for musicians that helps you upload your songs to all music streaming platforms from iTunes to Spotify and Apple Music, then pays you revenue from your songs all in one place. They've got a really cool new feature called Splits that allows you to add collaborators so you can pay your co-writers and fellow musicians without needing an accountant. To get 30% off your first year's DistroKid subscription, just head to distrokid.com slash VIP slash hard times. Welcome to the first ever podcast. My name is Jeremy Bohm. I am your host. And if it is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. My guest this week is Marissa Paternoster for episode 126. She is the vocalist and guitarist of the band Screaming Females, who I just had the absolute pleasure of touring with this winter. Both of us were opening for the Menzingers, and being in their company every single day was such an absolute joy. Some of my favorite people I've ever toured with. Um, it's easy to say both of our bands completely fell in love with one another. Um, I'm excited to announce that they have a brand new record coming out February 17th on Don Giovanni Records. It's called Desire Pathways. You can pre-order that now, and I urge you to immediately to celebrate their record release on February 17th and 18th, they are going to be doing their festival called Garden Party. It's in Jersey City, and this year is completely stacked. It is on sale now. Uh, artists playing include Arm & Hammer, Truth Cult, Laura Stevenson, Gel, Nina Nastasia, and Cat Bite. You can check out more info at Garden Party Fest on Instagram. I urge you to go if you are in the New Jersey area. And uh, if you're not, you should definitely catch them on their U.S. tour, which starts in March, uh, featuring Generation Suicida opening. Um, if you haven't seen Screaming Females Live, you absolutely have to. What an incredible, incredible band. Um, if you are new to the podcast, I'm going to let you know there's a bonus episode available right now where Marissa answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can access that, plus tons of other Bonus episodes, bonus radio hours, uh, a Discord channel, all sorts of stuff that going on over on the Patreon, which is patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. It helps support the show. You get a lot of cool stuff. Um, it means a lot to me, you know? And if uh, you enjoy the show and you're new here, if you wouldn't mind subscribing to it on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is you're listening to it, that would mean a lot. A positive rating and review on Apple goes a long way. means a lot. So that's my spiel. And uh, if you want to email me and talk to me, maybe throw out a suggestion, a comment, um, anything about the show, you can hit me at the first ever mailbag at gmail.com. All right. Without further ado, here is my conversation with the incredibly talented, the incredibly funny Marissa Paternoster. <laughs> What's up, Marissa? It's so nice to see you. It's great to see you um 
I uh, I've been looking forward to this. Um, you obviously are uh, someone that I I just got off the road with, and you're someone that I had an absolute pleasure hanging out with every single day. Um, I miss you. You've been okay. I miss you too. No, because I miss you guys. Oh, how was I've your been holidays? Despairing. Were, <laughs> were your holidays okay? Yeah, it was fine. Just sat around and like ate food, and I got like some new underpants. Hell yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have no, I have no grounds for complaints. I just like, you know, I I'm I am a shell of a woman without you guys. No, oh. <laughs> the hollow You're hollow shell. shell. <laughs> but what's uh, that's uh, yeah, we missed the hell out of you. That was a a sad departure. But I mean, most tours are a sad departure. But it's funny. You know what? Actually, for this is how sad and distraught I was when we were saying when we all had to say goodbye. For the last like since 2011 at the end of every single tour i ask the bands that i tour with to sign a record for me so it'll be like a yearbook thing when i'm older so i like i have this long huge collection of all these records signed by every single band we've ever toured with and i you're the first band that i forgot to ask to do that (laughs) like i was just in the headspace of like long goodbyes and like sad goodbyes that it didn't even like read like the next day i was like oh my god i didn't get a record signed so I mean, we could totally make that happen. Well, I I'm going to see it, you when you're going to, you'll be out here oh, soon. Yeah. So Duh. yeah, I'm going to make it happen then. <laughs> but it was just like one of those things where I was like, I can't like in over 10 years, this is the first time I've forgotten to do that. It's, so yeah, I mean, there you go. What can I say? We're, Hags, have a good summer. KIT, keep in touch. And here we are, KITing. <laughs> we are KITing, absolutely. Big time. Uh, but uh, so yeah, you you all leave semi soon is is it like in less than a month well we leave we're coming to berkeley in the week after next to play homesick which is ceremonies festival um and we're really excited about that because the lineup is always really awesome we've been friends with them for a while so it's it's an honor to be on the bill um and then Cut from the record. I can't really talk about the other dates because they're not announced yet. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah actually, uh, <laughs> I, I saw Anthony um, and Andy uh, like two nights ago at the Joyce Manor show, and we were talking about homesick and and whatever else. And uh, yeah, I'm I'd love to drive up and just like go to the show and hang out and see everybody. I'm I'm kind yeah, of I'm thinking excited. about it at this point. Um, oh, we're gonna stay for both home- days. Oh, awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's such a cool festival. And, you know, I appreciate Anthony's, um, you know, kind of going out of his way to make sure that the bills were like so wildly eclectic. So, yeah, I'm amped. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we kind of like modeled our our uh, yearly festival that we've been trying to like expand called the Garden Party to so that it kind of like mirrors homesick. And I, I mean, we we hit it off with ceremony when we met them as well, because they are like a band I feel like that gets pigeonholed into being a hardcore band, but they're so much more than that, obviously. And as fans of music, they all listen to like such a wide array of different things and that reflects in the homesick lineup. And that's kind of the way we feel too, but I don't really know what we're pigeonholed as, I guess a female fronted band, (laughs) which isn't a sound. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah but there's enough blog posts around the world that you know maybe it has become a it's become an internet sound of uh of of men talking 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, my, my preferred sound. <laughs> um, so yeah, you're, uh, are you actually from New Brunswick originally? Like, were you born and raised there? I'm pretty sure. Right. No, I'm actually from Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is like 30 minutes north. Um, I don't know a single person who is actually from New Brunswick because most of New Brunswick is a college town. With that being said, there are lots of families who live in New Brunswick. I just, um, I've never met anyone from New Brunswick. Interesting. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Um, And, you know, the first question I usually ask musicians is like, when you were growing up, what was the first thing that you connected with musically that felt like it was yours? Maybe not something that was like being played in your house by your cool dad, but something that, uh, you know, you found on your own and made you feel like you maybe had your own identity. Okay. Well, you already know the answer to this question. (laughs) Answer is that way first. I I think I do. Is it DMX? (laughs) Yes. I loved him. So may he rest in peace. Um. I grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey in the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. So Hot 97 basically like guided everybody's musical taste. And I was still in a headspace being like a 13 year old where I wanted, I wanted to not be perceived as a loser. I wanted to be popular. I wanted to be accepted. That like quickly, obviously washed away. But at the time I was like, I got to listen to what everyone else is listening to. Um, so I still, I mean, I love hot 97 and I still listen to it all the time, but that was basically like where all of, uh, whatever active listening I was doing, it all came from hot 97 and DMX was really, really popular at the time. And he was the guy that I gravitated towards out of all of the other music, like hip hop and R and B that was popular. I think I just liked it cause it was, it's, it sounded like it was just really aggressive, super angry. Um, obviously it was really catchy. Um, and I remember my friend Janelle Ramirez got me a copy of, uh, flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood for Christmas, which was very nice of her. Uh, Uh, were you like before, (laughs) like leading up to that at all? Like, were you into, you know, like quote unquote, like gothy stuff? Like, is that what kind of appealed to it? Because it had like the, you know, sort of violent, bloody, you know, like dark imagery or anything like that. I think it was pretty much my foray into becoming like, uh, whatever, like gothy or dark or turning into a teenager, essentially. Like before, before that, it's like, I didn't really, I, I, I often say that like, I didn't really have any memories prior to being like 13. I still felt like a fetus in a lot of ways. I didn't really have like taste in much of anything. I just kind of wanted to like, look at horses and draw pictures and like watch Ren and Stimpy. And then all of a sudden I started, you know, becoming a teenager and I felt like all, you know, you essentially become temporarily psychotic. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I think, you know, uh, whatever, whatever darkness was lying within me started to manifest. (laughs) Sure. Thank thank God DMX was there for me. Did you find that your art that you were drawing was changing with that too? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I really liked comic books as a kid, like superhero comic books. Um, and then I drew a lot of just cartoons. Like, like I said, Ren and Stimpy is a really good example of, which has amazing artwork um, of the stuff that I liked and tried to emulate. So I was drawing a lot of superhero stuff. And um, then I, when I started learning about like contemporary art, um, 
I was like, oh, I can actually kind of put down on, on a piece of paper or canvas or whatever, how I'm feeling. Um, I don't always have to just emulate the things that I like looking at. So, for sure. so yeah, I mean, I have some really embarrassing sketch pads that I'm looking at right now. <laughs> you saw <laughs> from back from then? Me. Oh, yeah, I have all of them. That's really yeah, cool. Big time. <laughs> Are you someone that has a hard time throwing stuff like that away? I don't I I don't have a hard time throwing things away in general, but I keep I've kept all my sketch pads, yeah. I mean, it would feel really bad to throw them out. I can't really imagine doing that. And it's only one box of stuff. So I'm just like yeah. that's not it's not overwhelming. It's not too bad. Yeah. Yeah. I I can I can certainly relate to that. I have some notebooks that I it would pain me to open up to like read any of it, but at the same time I'm like I can't I just feel like I would feel bad if I threw this away. Yeah. I mean, I know it's going to wind up in like the Pacific garbage patch and that's fine, but um, I need to look at it once in a while. Do you ever just walk around your room and touch all your stuff (laughs) and just be like, man, I love my stuff. I do that a lot. I love that. That's awesome. Um, What, uh, what was the first album that you remember maybe buying with your own money? Was it, was it now are you like a hip hop kid? No, I, I mean, like I, I would say that I did no due diligence when it came to like researching uh, the rich history of like hip hop and R and B. I just liked DMX. Sure. <laughs> that was it. I had the first two records or for the first three records maybe. And then um, my dad listened to a lot of he was still like actively seeking out new music um obviously cds were a big deal at the time and he was a member of one of those like columbia house like a uh, catalog things where you can get 10 cds for the price of one or whatever or, so or it's like, yeah it's like a penny and you get 10 cds and you're just like how does this work yeah I, I who knows i still don't know to this day it's like a dark magic but um I I wasn't like an allowance kid. Um, I mean, there was just a lot of music coming into the house anyway. So I can't really remember the first album I bought with my own money, to be honest, because I just kind of like would steal my dad's stuff and listen to that. And that's how I, I first heard like Nirvana, you know, it's because was there, he bought Nevermind. Sure. Was there a record store near you? Not really. I mean, suburban New Jersey can be pretty bleak obviously um there was a record store in fords which was within with like a half hour away called vintage vinyl that was really massive and had a lot of stuff um but mostly my dad and i would just go to coconuts which was like a regional chain i don't know if you're like familiar with it no uh, there was there was one by us and we, we would go there and he would get like a steely dan box set and i would get like bush's latest release (laughs) and then we'd like go on our merry way (laughs) perfect perfect uh what what about the first concert you went to the first concert i went to because i wanted to see the band (laughs) yeah was was weezer um they were playing at pnc art center which is like a an auditorium type like outdoor seating place in new jersey um and they were on tour for the Green Album, which was like one of my first memories of seeing a, a band that hadn't broken up already on TV was seeing the video for Hashpipe. And I was yeah. kind of like a late bloomer when it came to rock and roll. I think I might have been like 14 or 15 at the time. 
like guitar based music was like for dinosaurs in my mind. I was just like, I'm not interested in this stuff in between DMX and like Nirvana. I listened to a lot of like Bjork and massive attack. Like, I don't know. That was like a weird time that I can't really uh, extrapolate it on. Cause I feel like I like blacked out and was listening to trip hop, but I love the credibility of that, by the way, just being like, yeah, like yeah. I hadn't found, I hadn't found Bush yet. I was really into massive attack. <laughs> I don't know, man. The, the, the late 90s, early 2000s were a crazy time. Truly. <laughs> you were there. Um, so, the yeah, I went to see Weezer Dashboard Confessional played. I remember my friends were really into the Dashboard Confessional EP, and I thought that was some music for for some real wusses. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I listened to the hard stuff, like Hashpipe. Yeah, I listened Weezer. to Hashpipe. Yeah. Yeah. That was heavy, you know? That was like the heaviest riff I had ever heard in my life uh, up until that point. And uh and Sparta opened. Uh, I didn't oh. I I do remember that Cut Your Ribbon song and it was delightful. I always wonder, is the rest of that album good? And then, and then I forget to try it. Sure. It's about the yeah. same. Yeah. It it honestly sounds I always thought I always thought Sparta was it sound you could tell it's a member of At the Drive-In, but it's but without all the wild stuff that happens. So it's sort of like the vanilla version of At the Drive-In. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. there's no weird wacky guitar stuff happening. Yeah, I I suspect that I would not hate that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, um, it's not bad. Yeah. So first first concert was Weezer. It was also the first time I got my period. So it was <laughs> the, the best show, day like, ever. Night. It happened earlier in the day, and the only okay. thought that went through my mind since I knew, obviously, well, maybe not obviously, I knew that someday this would happen. And I was like, ugh, that sounds awful. And then I was like, oh my God, it fucking happened. And I was like, today, of all days, when I'm going to see the best man ever, Weezer, and I was so mad. <laughs> and I was really worried I wouldn't be able to get to the Weezer show because yeah. it was menstruating. <laughs> but I made it. <laughs> Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sure that adds an extra level of stress in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, you were still able to. You were still able to enjoy it. Mm, yeah, it was difficult at times. I I didn't understand how tickets worked, a reentry worked, and I think I went to the bathroom. And when I came back, I didn't have the ticket anymore. And they were like, "You can't go back in." And I was like, "Please, I'm a child." And they were like, "No." <laughs> so I might have missed a little. In? Oh my god. No, I think I wandered around the lawn for a while. It's fine. Okay. I don't yeah. who knows what songs I missed. Maybe some other gems from the green album. Sure, sure. I can't uh, name one other song on that album. Uh <laughs> Island in the Sun. That, Island Island in the Sun. Yeah, that one's on. That yeah. one's on there. That's a good that's a good single. Um yeah. did uh how so okay, so you discover rock music, you discover the power of of gin 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 gin. How uh yeah, how soon after that do you get interested in wanting to play guitar? Is it a while after or pretty soon? Um I would say it was pretty much immediately uh to introduce my dad Angelo into the mix again. He had a guitar and uh I was bore or no i know what was happening i was listening to nirvana as you do i was in the computer room which is a thing that we used to have remember the computer room sure. when the computer had its own room i was in yeah. there i'm listening to nirvana probably being so grumpy 
<laughs> and 14 or 15 or whatever. And my dad came in the room and he was like, Hey, if you want to learn this on guitar, I can teach you. Cause it's so easy. And I wow. was like, that sounds great. I love easy stuff. And then he taught me and I just did it and it was easy. And I think by nature, I am very, very lazy. And I was like, this is easy. I'm good at it. And then I just kept doing it. <laughs> was it, was it come as you are or was it, uh, like, it smells like, like teen spirit. spirit. Yeah. yeah. I feel like it's usually one or the other for the first Nirvana song you learn. Come as you are. I, yeah. Come as you are is a little bit harder, I suppose. I think it's just the I intro. Don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that uh, was the second one, to be honest. Yeah. 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 Uh, and did you, and did, once you realize like, oh, like these just power chords kind of can make every song that I like right now. Uh, did you find yourself wanting to learn more considering like hash pipe is probably the same and like, you know, glycerin is all the same. It's all just, you know, power chords. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I pretty much immediately just started printing out tabs from the, from the internet, which was, uh, I, you know, it's still pretty prevalent, I think with, the kids who are learning guitar is reading tablet yeah. tabulature. It's a hard word to say. Um, I, I had a very like um, dorky little like binder that I had organized by band. And so I just had like a bunch of different songs printed out and I, I usually wouldn't learn the whole song. I feel like I would only learn the parts that like resonated with me or were interesting to me. Um, but because I was a fan, I mean like learning the Nirvana stuff, I feel like went, relatively quickly and then when i was moving on to the other bands that i really liked at the time i i kind of had to learn more than a power chord to be able to play a lot of those songs um yeah so i kind of i kind of moved on to to trying other stuff pretty quickly did uh did you ever take guitar lessons no no so no. yeah like when it came to when it came to like learning how to like do the solos or just like learning how to do like scales and stuff like that. That was all self-taught. I still don't really, I understand like kind of in the way you would understand a math equation, like what, how a scale is, is constructed and like how, why, why chords are called what they're called and how, how they're created. Um, but I don't, I don't think about scales when I like solo, what I used to do all the time is like put on a record that I like and then just, play over it so i think a lot of when i think about soloing like if i'm soloing in the key of like an e major i kind of like visualize the certain shape that's applicable to to the to that key and then if we're playing in like d major it's like a different shape and i that's the best way that i can explain it because it's not really like there aren't really words for it <laughs> um, no i yeah, sure. And I'm wondering if that has anything to do with like the art side of your brain, like just thinking of things in that more capacity, you know, and that's sort of what maybe led you down that path of like, that's how yeah. you figured out how to do it. Probably. And I think a lot of self-taught musicians have like really weird little things like that, where um, they just found what worked for them in their brain. And there's no reason, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. <laughs> sure. No, I get it. Uh, I remember. How... What... Go ahead. We were on tour with the Breeders and I saw Kim Deal had written out like some uh, a bass part for the Halloween theme song. And she wrote the notes like staggered in this way that looking at it, I kind of even understood it, but not completely. 
Yeah. And I was like, oh, she has like, that's her thing. That's how she writes out stuff so she can remember it um, oh, wow. or learn how to play it. And I was just like, I love seeing little things like that. It's cool. Yeah. Did you talk to her about it at all or no? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> she just walked past. She said, I get it. And then just kept walking. Yeah. I mean, a little bit. Yeah. We had to learn that song to play with them, too. So I was probably like, I'm sure I looked at it with her. <laughs> Whoa, that had to have been a pretty surreal situation. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Damn. Totally. That's uh yeah, I can't even imagine. Um was uh so then how soon after when you were playing guitar and stuff did you get interested in wanting to play in, in a band? Like did you start a band pretty quick? Um I didn't there were like maybe like three other kids in my high school who were interested in music in any capacity and the prevailing genres of like guitar driven music that were popular were like new metal and pop punk, which were two things yeah. I was completely not interested in. Um, <clears throat> I was listening to a lot of grunge, which at that point was over effectively. Sure. I mean, it was still happening for sure. Or whatever you want to call it. Alternative rock was not popular anymore. Uh, this is the early 2000s and then i was also listening to a lot of like kill like kill rock stars stuff a lot of pacific northwest like k record stuff and those bands had been gone for a very long time effectively so i i kind of was just like well the stuff i'm interested in just doesn't exist anymore that's okay um you know maybe i'll come across it someday i think i always was like a little bit hopeful that i'd meet somebody who was also like interested in listening to Bratmobile. Um, but with that being said, it's like, as long as it had a guitar in it, I usually would gravitate towards it in some capacity. So like if my, like my friends were really into like Thursday, even though I don't think that's something I would have actively sought out on my own. I went to see them a bunch of times and loved them. And I got the record and I grew up going to see Thursday all the time because I just, you know, as a kid, I, I still try to have like that open heart and open mind when it comes to music. You just want to like be in the thick of it. I just wanted yeah. to see bands play and that's what was around me. So, um, but yeah, I really wanted to be in a band super duper bad. And I really didn't care what kind of music it was. I think I asked a new metal band in my high school if I could be in, in their band. They were called Relapse. Hell yeah. Um, and they were really nice, actually. And they, they said they had enough guitar players. Um, but I did wind up drawing. Uh, then the guitarist asked me to design a tattoo for him, which is crazy because we were 15 or something. <laughs> and I said, sure. And then I did. And the design was a rat holding a guitar, smoking a blunt. <laughs> did you get it tattooed? I don't know. <laughs> i saw him at guitar center like in my 20s and he asked me if i was still rocking and i said hell yeah that's amazing did you <laughs> ask if he was still rocking <laughs> no i got scared i still felt that's... i think i still felt rejected <laughs> relapsed a little uh, bit yeah sure uh, or i was like I mean... who is this man <laughs> Hey there, do you need to get some merch printed? My incredible sponsors over at Anchorfish Printing has a great deal going on right now. You can get 100 soft style shirts for only 499 bucks. Do the math. 
that's a great deal. For details, email michael at anchorfishprinting.com or shoot him a call at 773-340-1286. You can also visit anchorfishprinting.com and see what else they have to offer. They are a one-stop shop for all your merch needs. And don't forget to mention the first ever podcast when you place your order. So, okay. So yeah, I mean, you're living in your, you mentioned Thursday. It's like, you're, you know, you're in the area in which they're playing as like a, you know, a localish band and everything like that. Did you, did you start going to shows at the, you know, at all the infamous basement venues in and around that area of New Jersey? No, I didn't know about basement shows at all. Um, when I was in New Jersey and still in high school, there was club Chrome and then, a uh, a, a old bridge i don't know what it was even called it we just called it old bridge um and then there's starland ballroom which sure. is huge so yeah. i didn't really have like a concept of like how small show how small shows could be yeah i i kind of thought that if you were like an entry-level band you were playing for a minimum of like 1500 people which is nuts but i think that's yeah. how a lot of probably young kids perceive stuff but there were also a couple venues in New Jersey that were like these pay to play kind of like coffee house places. So they run this scam essentially where they charge the band, um, to reserve the space. Then they give you tickets. You're supposed to sell your own tickets to recoup your money. And I don't know, whatever. So I saw some bands there. Yeah. It was a racket. I saw some bands at those places, um, but sometimes they would have real shows come through those places. I don't know what deal those bands got, but I saw like, I remember I saw Circle Takes the Square play for like 50 people or something at one of those places. Um, So, but yeah, I mean, the pickings were definitely slim. And also the proc, like Elizabeth is right over the bridge from New York. So because of the proximity to New York, that's a big reason why that New Jersey doesn't really have, or I I don't want to say that New Jersey does have a lot of great venues, but I feel like they're not, um, it's just, there's so many goddamn people in New Jersey. There should probably be more venues and there's only like three (laughs) or four, you know? Um, and it's just because New York is like a hop, skip and a jump. And so it's Philadelphia. Yeah. And I'm sure people are just used to, to uh traveling to go to shows there anyway um so then when uh actually i think i i think i remember someone saying this but is screaming females the like the first band that you ever did no mike and i were in a band in high school called surgery on tv i i had started my first year of college and i like hated college so much i hated new brunswick it was like super miserable and um I would come home every weekend to have band practice with Mike and then these two other like neighborhood kids. Um, and we were a really weird jam band. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, our, our friend Chris Bobbins played piano and a keyboard, like a Yamaha keyboard that I found in my basement. And he really liked like Medusky, Martin and Wood and Fish. And then our drummer was really into Hope's Fall and Kitty. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> We were children, and then yeah, as so we practiced at my grandma's basement, and we actually played like ten shows, and they were all wow. really weird. And that is, um, that is officially the wildest mishmash of music influences I have ever heard in my entire life. 
yeah, it was strange, but we had a good time. Um, and that's, you know, essentially one of the reasons why I met Jarrett was because I was in that band. Um, but it didn't last very long. I remember one of the sweet, I mean, Mike, there was several times that your entire band said incredibly sweet things about, about like your friendship and how long you all have been, you know, doing this or whatever. But I remember Mike saying that he wanted to learn bass just so he could play guitar or so just so he could play in a band with you, which is unbelievably <laughs> sweet. Um, yeah, how did you, how did you and Mike <laughs> meet? Um, so in in our, uh, I went to public school until high school and then I went to a Catholic school and, um, um, I went to Catholic school because of, I had, I had some nasty bullies and I was just kind of like, mm. I can't do this anymore. And my dad was like, well, you can go to Catholic school. Like, don't worry. You won't have to pray if you don't want to. And he was like, you know, it's an option if you want it. And I was just like, I'll take it. <laughs> and so yeah. I wound up there, which was very, very strange to me. At the time, I didn't grow up religious. And my mother's also Jewish. So it was just like incredibly weird. And um, they didn't have a music program. And they had a really robust and I would say like amazing music program in the public high school or the public schools in Elizabeth where I was going to school prior. And But there was this one teacher, um, Mr. Siliberto, who taught math who was nice enough to, to, um, facilitate what we very creatively called music club. <laughs> and it was on <laughs> Tuesday afternoon and it was like my whole world. It was the only thing I cared about. And, um, basically you would go to music club and we would just like jam because Mr. Siliberto loved fish so much. And a lot of fish around so much fish. You have no idea. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I understand why people like fish. I think I can wrap my head around why it's so engaging for people. It is not for me. However, um, I will say that it, it did me such, they did me such a great service when it comes to learning how to play with other people because Mr. Silberto was very insistent on learning how to play by ear and just jam so much emphasis on jamming, obviously. Yeah. But um, I th I think I met Mike there. I mean, I I saw him in the hallway at school. He had like long hair and he had like a Brian Jonestown massacre pin on his backpack. And I was like, I want to be that kid guy's friend so bad. Oh. And then he came to music club and then we were friends. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. So what was the first show that you played? The first, the first surgery on TV show was at, uh, Bloomfield Ave Cafe, which was a pay to play place. And cause we didn't know how to sure. book a show. Yeah. We had no idea. Yeah. So Mike and I went in there one day, I think like a ska band was playing and we bought our own tickets <laughs> to the show <laughs> and we sold them to like seven people. Um, and we played for those, maybe six people showed up <laughs> Yeah. Um, it was in the afternoon. Uh, and it, I remember, uh, it was, it wasn't a huge thrill, but I was proud that we had done it. Yeah. Um, and it, it still wasn't until I met Jarrett that I even learned that that's not how shows really worked <laughs> or should work. Uh, just out of curiosity, were you singing in that band too? 
Yeah, I did. I it was I really didn't want to sing at all, but nobody else wanted to do it. And so I just was like I knew I could I knew I could hold a tune. Um and I knew that I could sing relatively in key. So I was just like, I'll just do it. I'll do anything. Like, you, you know, it was that mentality. It was just like, I'll do anything to be in a band. I'll do anything. <laughs> were you singing in like, a, you know, you mentioned you had to, you ended up going to, to like Catholic school. Were you a part of, did you get like forced into being a part of choir or anything like that at any point? Like, no. did you like, no. Okay. Did, no, uh, no, I didn't participate in like anything, but in public school, I was in choir the entire time. And then there was like another another choir that was smaller called vocal ensemble that I was in as well. So I would say like my first instrument would, would be my voice. Yeah. Probably. How early, how early on did you realize that you could carry a tune? Cause I mean, you know, I'm not, not to blow smoke, but you have a pretty incredible voice. Like when did, when did that, when did that come into the picture for you? Like realizing that you could project in such a way. I don't think I ever realized it because I had started singing at such a young age and, and choir was a thing. It was a class we took every day. And then when I was in vocal ensemble, it was something we did twice a day. Um, so, but I didn't realize how loud I was <laughs> probably <laughs> until I was in screaming females. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, but I am from New yeah. Jersey, so. I'm just naturally <laughs> pretty loud. Can your uh can your folks sing at all? My dad can sing. Yeah. yeah. He, he he can carry a tune. Yeah. And when he was my principal, which is and he was my principal, I was in someone's class and I remember uh the teacher was like, "We're going to have a very special guest today." And I was like, "Oh, goody, a special guest." I I'm in 3rd grade and I can't wait to see who the special guest was. But the special guest was my dad. <laughs> and he was playing guitar and he was singing and I didn't like that at all. <laughs> oh my. You're like, no, dad, no, no. <laughs> no, no, I actually probably thought it was cool, <laughs> to be that's honest. Cute. That's I was like a little cute. amoeba. I was just like, that's my dad. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, what about uh what about recording? Did that did uh did that early band record ever? Yes. Uh we recorded with my dad's work computer and like the okay. little like kind of like um like the micro it looks like a microphone like johnny carson would have (laughs) (laughs) and he had one of those computers where the mouse was like uh it looked like someone shoved a crayon in the middle of the keyboard oh sure Um, yeah and i downloaded some program i don't even remember what it was called it wasn't like ableton or there's some open source uh digital audio workspace and uh I just set up the microphone and we played. And then I think we even might've put like overdubs and solos on it and stuff. Um, wow. I'm, I'm sure that the CD is somewhere, but I, I would never let anyone ever listen to it. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, this is interesting because it sounds like early on you were, uh, you know, teaching yourself how to self record and things like that. Cause I saw the first, um, two screaming females records are you guys recorded them yourselves. Correct uh just the first one we recorded ourselves um and then the first seven inch we ever put out we we recorded with a guy named paul mahajan and that was like my first experience with someone who knew what they were doing (laughs) i guess but 
Yeah, I made a, um, I made a, I made a note of that here. Uh, was that that's the arm over arm seven inch, right? Yeah. Yeah. Did, did uh, what was that experience like for you? Like going to someone else to have them do it, and was that like in an actual studio studio, or was that still kind of like a home recording setup? It, it's hard to remember. It was like I think it was like a warehouse space in Greenpoint. I want to say, and I think they did have like a an isolation booth, but maybe it was just someone's room. I, I I remember there being a glass lighting door, so I want to say it was there was a proper isolation booth, and like the engineer was like not in the same room because you know when we recorded our first album, Jarrett just would record the drums to a click track at home, and then we would put all the other stuff over it later. Um, and it, you know we did a because we all grew up with home recording. I mean it wasn't yeah. as advanced as it is now, but it wasn't like this complete mystery to us. We were like we could probably do this ourselves if we just read a couple articles. <laughs> um, sure. So, but I, when we recorded with Paul Mahajan, I guess we just played live um, and he just recorded the songs. There are two like completely glaring mistakes on the, um, on both of the songs because I didn't know that I could ask to do it again. <laughs> and I didn't I didn't know that I could also ask to punch stuff in. I had no idea that that was like yeah, possible. Sure. Um so so yeah, I hate also, I hate those mistakes, but Yeah. I mean, it gives it the charm. It's like you're nervous. You you don't know that, you know, you're allowed to do something again. I get it. Or you're afraid to ask, you know? I think it was more of a fear thing. It was just like an older guy who had some semblance of like a recording CV. I didn't know who he was. I just felt very small. I, he wasn't mean in any way or, or anything like that. It was just intimidating, you know, like I didn't, yeah. I wasn't ready to ask for things the way I am now. <laughs> for sure. Uh, and to back, I mean, just to backtrack just a, just a little bit, you mentioned you met Jarrett through that band. Um, and then he kind of, you know, it sounds like you said, like, he kind of showed you that you can do, um, you don't have to pay to play, to play shows. Was he already uh, insulated with, like, a scene that he was a part of? Yeah, so he's, Jared's, like, maybe two years older than me in, like, school, the school world. Sure. Um, so he had done a semester in Ireland, and he came back, and um, he was friends with some other punks in New Brunswick who were in a bunch of bands. Uh, one of them was called Plastic East. I remember the, the Atomic Missiles was another band he was friends with. And so they were playing basement shows and I was a freshman in college and I, you know, for the life of me could not find like anything to do in New Brunswick. I was so bored and sad. Um, I couldn't go to bars cause I was 20 or 19 or whatever um, and I did wind up going to a couple shows to see like some like avant-garde kind of like noise stuff with the friends I had made at art school. And it wasn't really my thing, but like, I was like, well, if this is what's going on here, I want to be there. So, yeah. so, uh, when I met Jarrett, he took me to see the Ergs who are like a, a, a very beloved pop punk band from New Brunswick, New Jersey. And, um, and that was the first time I ever got to see like the music that I was just more into like pop punk or whatever. Yeah. Guitar driven music. Yeah. It was like that thing, you know, to backtrack to when I was in high school and I had thought that all of the music that I really was gravitating towards and 
wanted to be a part of was gone. And that was just a fact of the matter. And there was no, no way I was ever going to really kind of get in touch with it. I, I was like proven wrong. I was like, Oh, it is, it is very much alive and well. Um, and I, I did a lot of hard, hard work and yearning to, to, until I found it. So when I found it, I remember being like so overwhelmed at that show that I had to like step out and go sit in the garage for a little while. Oh, wow. Cause I was just like, so floored. Yeah. And then, so how soon after that did you, uh, did the Screamy Females start? Like, did that band, did the band you were in with uh, Mike split up and then you were like, okay, now I'm going to start this thing with Jarrett too? Or how did that all come together? Well, so Jarrett joined Surgery on TV for like a couple months and we had practice with Chris Bobbins who played, he's still a good friend who played keyboard and he was still in high school as well. So he left and, and went and got a music degree um and it was clear that he just like wasn't you know he's gonna go to college like he wasn't interested in doing this thing um it just wasn't sustainable um mike still had another year of high school and whenever chris would leave to go home early from band practice me and jared mike and jared and i would play and it just was came really easily we like got along really well i think we like wound up writing a song that day or something and I'm sure at some point, it we you know within that span of time, we were like, "What if, what if we just had three of us do it? You know, what if the three of us just did the the band thing? Would you be yeah. down to do that?" And everyone was just on the same page, which is very important. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. And then yeah. the idea of just like changing the name, or was it like an, even like a name change, or was it like let's just start fresh with a full new everything? Yeah, no, we 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 still played some surgery on TV songs, um, and they're on the first Screaming Females record. Um, we just changed the name because it seemed like the right thing to do. But also, um, when we uh, booked our first house show, we still didn't ha- really have a name um, for like this new project. So we just kind of picked up like a a book of some kind of like contemporary poetry that was on the coffee table at Jared's house and I just like flipped through it until we found a pairing of words that we thought would look cool on a flyer. That's awesome. That's, that's a, that's, that's a very, uh, I love band name stories that are just something that simple where you're just like, yeah, we needed something. So we just like flipped through a book and there it was. And yeah, you know, that's literally 17 (laughs) years later or whatever, you're still, you're still with it. Um, did, uh, that band did that band tour at all or no? Oh no, 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 okay, <laughs> no. okay. no. I was. Well, well, the, go ahead. Two out of three of us were, or half of us were still in high school, sure. <laughs> so <laughs> no one was going anywhere. <laughs> what was uh? What was the first tour the Screaming Females did? The we did um we did a couple like weird little trips down to like North Carolina and played like one or two shows before we ever did our first like national tour, but our first like actual tour tour, I want to say it was 2006, but I might be wrong, but it was, it was 70 days long. Oh my (laughs) Um, God. Jarrett booked the entire thing himself using a website called MySpace. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he also, he also used a, a thing that wasn't 
called MySpace, which is the ERGs, who had a lot of contacts that were really helpful for us. Um, and we just didn't know how long tours should be. But uh, we did know that we had the summer off from school. So that's when tour would happen. And yeah. tours should probably be for the whole time that we're not in school. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of like how it was up until... Um, I graduated is that like what if there was a break in school for whatever spring break or or Christmas break or and of course during the summer we just filled the whole thing with yeah. tour and 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 that and that first tour was like one of the most formative experiences of my life and probably I could probably speak for the boys and say that it's what was for them as well and uh, so many of the people that we met on that tour are still like our some of our best friends we still stay at their houses and see them every time we like come through but yeah, it was really long, but it was super fun. It was, you know, probably like How the greatest many, summer of my life. That's amazing. How many of those shows ended up happening? Just because that's a pretty that's a pretty common situation where it's like, yeah, we booked this this whole tour on MySpace, and then there you always deal with the promoter who doesn't pick up their phone or the show that just isn't happening. Like, was it pretty successful overall? I, I want to say, and I'm not trying to be funny, but like 69 yeah. of the shows probably happened. <laughs> I think one of them almost didn't happen. It was at like a wine bar. I think we were in Mobile, Alabama. And um, we were like standing in the wine bar and we were like, is there a show here tonight? And everyone was like, I don't know. No, leave. <laughs> so we just got in the van and we drove around until we found, we were like, let's go get coffee. And then the coffee place was having a show. So we asked if we could play and they said, yes. Oh, wow. And so it, you know, it was obviously like no iPhones, no GPS, just, just drive around till you see someone who looked kind of punk. Right. (laughs) And then we like went in there. (laughs) That's incredible. I love how that worked out. That's so cool. Uh, wow. Yeah. This, the days of like having to just print out just, did you have like the, the folder of printed out directions on how to get to each show? We had a we had a map. We used like okay. a like a proper map, and then usually when we would get close to where we were going, we would stop at a gas station and look at the map in the gas station and try not to get yelled at for not buying the map. Right, sure, sure. <laughs> and just kind of like write it down really quick on a piece of paper because even even getting on like a computer and printing out stuff was a huge pain in the ass. Totally. Um, but by the next time we went on a tour, I think we had a Garmin, which those things at the time were like $300 or whatever. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I remember the the band I was in before Touche that we did like a similar thing. Only we just printed out a book of MapQuest directions that were all often wrong, like very oh, yeah. wrong. <laughs> um, but then I also remember gar- the early, the early Garmin's as well. Um, would often just take you to a place that also doesn't exist or something like that. Like it wasn't good technology just quite yet. And uh, no, no. Yeah. I felt like there's like a early horror movie that could have been made about a killer Garmin that, that leads you to uh, off a, off a cliff or something. Cause yeah, we used to have to like, we used to have to like sit and find Wi-Fi so that we could like load Canadian maps into the, the device. And it just triggered like me. the first yeah the first time we went to europe when we drove into eastern europe the gps just like turned off oh and we God. were just like yeah. <laughs> I don't, like printing out directions on MapQuest when you're in like slovenia 
is really hard. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Wait, so I don't know if I realize that. Do you drive your, have you, were you driving yourself in Europe? Um, I can't drive stick, which it brings me great shame, but, um, Mike and Jarrett drive. Yeah. Mike and Jarrett drive essentially. So, so yeah, I mean, our I'm, first European tour, they, we drove ourselves. I I can't I applaud you so much. That is so I didn't do I anything. Be, yeah, no, no. But I mean I applaud your band so much for for having the <laughs> the wherewithal and the what about in the in the UK? Were they comfortable driving on the opposite side of the street? Um, well, we were on the ferry and it was our first yeah. time ever going to the UK. So then while while we drove for like the first like three hours, everyone just kept saying, remember to be on the left just out loud over and over again, just saying yeah. it all the time out loud until it kind of became easy. I mean, obviously, you know, this, like when you're in a band, most of the time you're on the highway. So even if you're on the left side of the road, like when you're on the highway, whatever, but once you're in the city, sure. I'm sure it's terrifying. Oh my God, I trust yeah. Jarrett and Mike obviously with my life. So I was just chilling. It seemed hard <laughs> though. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I you know even to this day because we've we've had uh, the same well aside from one tour we've we've toured with the same lovely lovely uh, person from Poland his name's Christoph like every tour we've been to over there and he drives us and tour manages us and everything like that and like I'll be sitting shotgun and and you know even when he because he's you know all the cars in the in uh, Europe are like ours so it's like when I see him make the switch I'm just like I, I just there's no way I could do it it just freaks me out so much it just it seems so confusing. Yeah, I mean, I think even if I could drive stick, I would be really hesitant to drive in Europe. It's just super intense, you know, a lot of tiny streets. Um, yeah. And it's really intimidating, obviously, when you're, especially if you're on the other side of the road. <laughs> totally, but, totally, totally. Um, what, uh, so when I, I, I look like the third record is when you, uh, when the band hooked up with Don Giovanni Records, um, how did that come your way? Because you've been with them since, seemingly. Yeah. Um, Joe Steinhardt was like a punk dude who hung out in New Brunswick. He actually, most of the people like who hung out in New Brunswick went to Rutgers at some point in time. Um, Joe actually didn't. He just wanted to live in New Brunswick because the Ergs were from New Brunswick. <laughs> and he that. grew up in Princeton, which was like, you know, it's like 15 minutes away or whatever. And so he grew up going to basement shows when he was in high school. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I, I never imagined like needing a label's help. I just like, by the time we had put out our second record, I felt like we had everything really under control, which is really funny in retrospect. Um, but, uh, I guess we kind of were just like, we figured out how to put out our own record. We figured out how to take ourselves on tour. Like, we don't really need to have anyone else involved just yet. And then Joe started coming to shows and he basically was just like, here are the new things that I could introduce to this project that might make being on a label, something that's appealing to you, things like distribution and like publicity, things that we didn't know really anything about or had considered. And it was just like another, I feel like another like natural step in, in, pushing the project forward and not it, it didn't seem like something we weren't ready for or whatever so don giovanni uh, records reissued the second album and um and then we did the third one with them in every record since 
Right. What, uh, you know, some of the coolest things I remember talking with all of you about was some of the people you made records with, uh, later on, um, like, you know, you, you made, uh, it's, it's looked like a, a studio record and then also a live record with Steve Albini. Um, when that opportunity came, what was that like for you? Were you just like, was that an idea that you all like had, like we want to do a record with this person or was that suggested? How did that, how did that, uh, come your way? Um, Jarrett wanted to do our third record with Steve Albini and I remember feeling like we weren't ready. Also the, the money that we had like available to us at the time that, um, to make that record would have only put us in the studio for a couple days. And like, mm -hmm. I'm a very nervous, uh, like a studio musician or whatever. Like I just, I get really antsy in the studio and I, if I can ever get extra time, I'll take it. And so on the third record, I just, I really was like, I obviously love Steve Albini, but I was just like, I didn't feel like we were ready. Um, so by the time I, we got to ugly, which is, I guess our fifth record, fifth record, yeah. uh, it just felt right. Like we felt, it felt natural. We had done a bunch of recording. Um, I, I think at first I felt like a little bit intimidated maybe, yeah. but Steve's a very personable guy and he's very pragmatic um and i think he just like had a great deal of respect for us like we did for him because we share very similar kind of work ethic um and so we were there for like 11 days or something like that and we just played yeah. and he recorded he just hit record yeah for sure i mean I, yeah i love that that's always been his whole thing where he's like you know sort of like the I'm not trying to make a band sound like something. I'm making a band sound like how they sound. You know, I'm just, that's why you'll hear certain records from him and you're like, holy shit, this sounds incredible. Then you'll hear certain like records and you're like, oh, that sounds like a band that, that wasn't prepared. And that's what they just sound like, which is kind of charming in, in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, I, the thing is, is like, I think he'll record any band that takes their project seriously. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we we got along swimmingly. It just makes a lot of sense. We kind of come from similar worlds, even though we're obviously we're active in very different time frames. Yeah, for sure. And then you did the last two records with Matt Bayless. Uh, and you all did you because that's of someone who obviously lives in uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, did you plan like tours around getting out there? Or did you fly out there? Like, how was uh, how was all that uh, when it came to planning? Was that difficult? Um, no, well, at that point, you know, we had been a band for over a decade. Um, and you know, what we do on tour is like set aside certain amounts of, of money so that we can make new records or buy a new van or do whatever you have to do when you're in a band. Sure, yeah. Um, so we knew we wanted to try something different and I don't remember how Matt Bayless came up. I think Jarrett might've just been knocking around on the internet and was like, what about this guy? Like, it seems like he can record, um, kind of like aggressive guitars, but also can record like kind of punk stuff and, and maybe like quieter stuff. Like he has like a dynamic range that I feel like Definitely. some engineers are like, you know, I'm the metal guy. Like I am an indie guy. Like, but Matt seemed to have like this really wide eclectic range of what he was capable of. Um, and he's actually from the East Coast, so he was out here visiting his family 
And so he just stopped by Mike's house and we like ate sandwiches and talked to him <laughs> about making a record. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And, um, and he also is like a, a punk, you know, like he, he listened, he went to like a ton of straight edge hardcore shows when he was growing up in Connecticut. So yeah, he understood what we were trying to do. Sure. Um, and yeah, for both of the records, we flew out there. Um, and Matt provided us with like whatever backline we needed. Did you guys haven't recorded a new record yet, right? Or, or are you planning to soon? Or is it well, out? We did. Or, so no, we no, did. It's not out, but recorded it. Yeah. We did. And you don't have to edit this out because I, okay. <laughs> I do. Well, it's getting announced January 17th, I think. Oh, this um, will be out there. So we okay. recorded it. We recorded it over a year ago and we went to Pachyderm, which is in Cannon Falls, um, Minnesota. And it, Pachyderm is where they recorded, most notably, in utero. Um, so Steve recorded in utero. Yeah. Um, so it's this, it's kind of, it's, you know, in rural, uh, very rural area. And, um, it's like the studio is in a shed that's on the property. Um, and then it's, it's, there's this like beautiful kind of like mid-century modern, like kind of shining esque, the movie, the shining esque like mansion that wow. the bands are welcome to stay in. Yeah. Um, there's a pool in the basement that is very scary and the water oh, is shit. like black. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a sauna, which is also very scary because someone carved their name into the wall. Um, and there are just tons of beds in every room because I guess like bands of varying sizes come there to stay. Yeah. Um, and so since we were doing another record with Matt, we asked him if there was ever a studio that he really wanted to go to, um, that he had like always dreamed of making a record in and, and Pachyderm was one of the places that he mentioned. So, so we made it happen. That's amazing. How long, and how long did that take? I think we were there for like two and a half weeks or something oh, wow, like that. Yeah. It's an awesome yeah, but we mixed. That's like perfect. Yeah. I, I mean, so we tracked, for that amount of time and then we came home and then we flew back to Seattle so Matt could mix in in his studio where he's comfortable mixing um and that only took like five days or something like that oh that's awesome and what's the record called the record is called Desire Pathway and when we were on tour with you um and the Menzingers we had an EP called Clover which are five songs um that aren't on Desire Pathway but they're from the same session Oh, okay. Awesome. 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 Um, but we well, didn't really like an, uh, announce the EP or like do much of anything to, to promote mm-hmm. it besides playing a bunch of shows. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Uh, well, that's exciting. When is, when is the record actually supposed to come out? Like, are you, I'm assuming you're announcing it on the 17th, but when does the record actually come out? The, the actual record comes out February 17th, which is also the first night of the garden party which is um, like a, the festival that we curate that we, is, uh, this year is at White Eagle Music Hall in Jersey City. Um, and so we pick a bunch of bands that we like. And this is the first year we're doing two nights and we have um, an after party and also like a daytime event. That's amazing. So, uh, is, the physi- is the physical going to be ready at the, in time? Like, did you plan this out to where that would be available or is it going to be a ways away? Uh, it better be there. 
Sure. Are you really open there? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, of course. Yeah, we all have our fingers crossed. But no, it's it's just so rare these days, I feel like, to announce a record and then a month later, the actual product exists but it sounds like you plan that to to sort of correlate together which is smart yeah well it's been done for a a really long time and a lot of a lot of the reason why we sat on all this stuff for so long is because of covid um so but it's it it, there is a certain kind of amount of fun and satisfaction that comes with sitting on something for long enough that you can plan something to unravel in a really exciting way um but but also you know of course it's frustrating you want to get it out there (laughs) for sure for sure and real quick before before uh, i hit you with the last question i wanted to ask about your solo record for a sec um you made that seemingly was it kind of like a covid project or was that was that the intent originally or did it just become that because of uh lockdown because from what i read it seemed like it was like people sending tracks uh, back and forth maybe recorded at home type of thing um talk to me about that i mean it was definitely a covid project but regardless of whether or not covid was happening um if i had collaborated with the same people it still would have all been uh recorded at home because none of us live in the same place but yeah um, for sure yeah i got home from uh screaming females was on tour with pop and and everything got shut down we had to fly home and, um, I was very lucky that my, my family was still in my, my grandma's house who had recently passed away. But so we still had the house and I didn't know if I could go any, I, I have roommates, you know, I didn't know if I could come back to my home. I didn't want to get anyone sick. We had been in Seattle and, and, and Portland. And I was just like, well, I have this big giant empty house. I'm going to stay here until we figure out what's going on. And so I had all my recording stuff at grandma's house. So I just set it up in the basement and it was something to do. <laughs> you know, didn't really have anything to do at the time. Were any, those songs thing, yeah, were any of those songs, things that you had been working on leading up to it? Or did that all come, come out of you just as you started, you know, working at grandma's house? Yeah, no, I just wrote them one by one with Andy Gibbs from Thou. So I sent Andy like, um, just the, a guitar track with some vocals on it. And then I asked him, I, I was like, you busy? And he was like, no, because <laughs> no one was busy. And I was like, you sure. want to try and put some stuff over this song? It's like two minutes long and two chords. And he was like, yeah. And then he sent it back and it was really cool and pretty. And I was like, do you want to do more? Because I am free indefinitely. And he was like, me too. Um, <laughs> So yeah, one by one, we just kind of like worked on a bunch of different songs. And then um, Kate Wakefield from Cincinnati um, is in this band called Lung. She's like an amazing cellist and an amazing singer. Um, She played cello on it. And then my friend Shauna from New York, who is in a band called Sneakskin, did a lot of the backup vocals. Um, I'm really proud of it. I was excited. It came out good. Um, Yeah. I only only, um really got to check uh you know like when i was preparing for this i was like skipping around and listening to a bunch of different stuff and that song white dove is super super good so i'm excited to like spend spend a lot of time with it now um well shit i'll hit you with the last question which is when was the first time that you felt like you were doing the thing you'd been working so hard towards um well i the whole thing about screaming females is that our 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 
primary goal is to like do this for as long as we can. And so we talk about not burning ourselves out and sustainability a lot. And so when new things happen, they never hit really hard because it just seems like it's a natural step in, in like this, this, in what our end goal is, which is to like stay together, make records that people like put on shows that people want to go to. But I will say that like, there are these really rare moments where like, I, I think I'm pronouncing it right. Like life becomes like this weird little Ouroboros, like the snail eat, or the snail, <laughs> the snake eating its <laughs> snake, own tail. Yeah. Sorry. Snails just kind of like resonate <laughs> with me more than snakes. Um, and when I was a kid, I really loved the band garbage. They were probably like my first favorite band. Cause I, to bring it all back around, I think they've merged my two interests, which was trip hop and, and rock and roll. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like yeah, that yeah. early nineties kind of like, like techno flavored rock and roll, like Kurt, the band curve or something. But yeah. So, so I just love that band. And, um, I, I kind of dropped off from following them. The more, the more I got into like playing shows and punk, I was listening to a lot of bands that we had gone on tour with or saw whatever. And, I got, I was at home in my apartment in, in New Jersey one day and, and Shirley Manson, the singer of garbage just posted a picture of me on Facebook with no caption. It was just me and someone sent it to me. Um, and I started freaking out cause I was just like, finally, she knows about me. <laughs> <laughs> um, we found each other. And so, yeah. uh, I, I wound up emailing her and I asked her I think probably like two emails in I was like take us on tour and she was like okay <laughs> and that was it whoa um, so they took you on so, tour yeah they took us on tour and uh and I still talk to her and they've always been really gracious and kind to us and actually the way Shirley did find out about Screaming Females is because Laura Jane Grace was nice enough to give her copies of our record I was like I know that you're one degree away from garbage or not even one degree. Yeah. Would that be a degree? Whatever. I was like, please give her my records. Um, And so I think like the first time I was like sitting backstage, just talking face to face with somebody that I literally built a GeoCities fan tribute site to. (laughs) Like that was very touching. I felt like I had done 14 year old me like a lot of great service. That is precisely the kind of answer I love. That's that's yeah. really really cool. That's really really sweet. Um, Marissa, thanks for hanging out. I uh, this was thanks, a blast. Jamie. You're you're the best. You're the best. I wish you were here. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Marissa for coming on. And thank you for listening. Do not forget to subscribe to the Patreon, which is patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon to access the bonus episode with Marissa right now. And don't forget to pre-order their new album, Desire Pathways. Do both of those things today. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye.